Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 40. I'm Joshua Klein. And I'm Mike Uptograph. And uh, in news around here, what we've got going on is issue 12 is going to go to the printer at the end of this week. Yeah. We're in the like the very last stages. Yeah, Copy that's... reading. We're reading together side by side. The last, all the last little details. Every I is dotted. Every T is crossed. So it's like just about to go to the printer. Yeah, our our list of things to double and triple check has gotten shorter and shorter. So it's always a good feeling when it's down <laughs> to maybe one page. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then things, it's it's gone pretty smoothly with this issue. Yep. Um, no huge hiccups, no real last minute panicky trying to get image permissions. Oh, I hate those. Yeah. So, uh, that's, that's great. We should keep doing it that way. Yeah. And, uh, also we got the, the craft research grant. Um, if you remember from last year, we started this research grant, uh, because we have so many people wanting to research craft work uh, around the world and we don't know those all those people. And so we thought, how can we connect with them? Um, And also we had people wanting to support those who wanted to do research. So we thought, hey, that sounds like that's a research grant. Um, And so we have a way for people to support research to happen, uh, to preserve craft traditions, uh, and at the same time to fund those people being able to do it. So if you're interested in donating, you can look up the craft research grant. uh, Or if you have an idea you can uh, mm. you can apply because we're going to be opening up uh, the going to be giving out the new application opening for the next round for the next year for the 2022 uh, craft research grant. So uh, be watching on our on our blog for that. I uh, will be uh, having that application available for a few months. And then um, what is the deadline? Do you remember? We so we select the recipients in June. June, yeah. And so we we basically cut it off a week before that. I yep. think it was the first week of June. Yeah. So you have some time, um, and you know, think about that that you know that historic house you wanted to study, that form of furniture or whatever, or a place you wanted to go to do that, um, and um, you know, send in your application because we want to be able to you know celebrate these crafts that are. Uh, that have been practiced or that are still being practiced around the world. Yeah. So just for uh, two examples, last year's recipients were Agnes Chang, who is currently, uh, thanks to this research grant, in Taiwan, uh, researching um, the last of the Taiwanese hand plane makers. Mm. And then we have Carrie Lambertson, who is going to spend a good part, a good portion of this year in the spring and summer traveling around eastern uh, Canada and the Maritimes, researching vernacular violin making. Uh, he himself is a maker and a fiddler, and uh, he's, he really wants to, to look into this idea that, that these violins were, were country instruments. You know, it, it's not just the Stradivarius, it's the, uh, the local cabinet maker or woodworker. Uncle making, Bob. Uncle Bob making musical instruments. <laughs> so uh, those are going to be great, and you'll see that, that research in uh, future issues of the magazine. Yeah. So, but that's it, right? We don't do anything else, right? No, we don't do anything else. Uh, yeah. Also, um, going on right now, we have <laughs> yeah, the uh, Morrison Tenant Apprenticeship Program. Oh yeah. Remember that? So this <laughs> this is this has taken off. I I feel yeah. like the impact of this has been uh, beyond our expectations. Yeah. So we've been we've opened up registration for the third term of this. So this is an eight week online woodworking course that is 
engaging and challenging. It's not just a, a bunch of videos that we give you access to and then you watch. We have... Or not. Or not, exactly. <laughs> yeah. We have daily and weekly assignments for each week. Each week has a different pursuit, whether it's specific joinery or there's a Greenwood week where... Um, our students are going out into the woods and felling trees with axes, riving them up and uh, making stuff out of them. Yeah. And yeah, and the thing we keep hearing from um, the, the prior terms, the students, the alumni, uh, is that they are just being able to do this alongside other people, people around the world. Right. Someone in, you know, New Zealand, someone in Switzerland, someone yeah. in Ohio, you yeah. know, they're all, they're all together going through this process. Um, and for them, it was just so encouraging to to try to uh, take on some of the stuff that they maybe attempted before, uh, but to have guidance and to have mentorship and to have camaraderie with others. It's yeah. just, um, it's just, the program's really working well. We're, as you can tell, we're really excited about it. Um, but as of this recording and as of the, the you know, release of this podcast, we are just about to close registration for term three. So uh, if you're listening to this and it just came out, quick, hurry over to mtapprenticeship.com and you can check out uh, what we're offering there. Otherwise, you can wait till the next term. Yep, um, we do this but, quarterly. Yep, quarterly, exactly. So um, there are opportunities if, if maybe the spring term doesn't work out for your schedule, uh, there will be another one coming up for the summertime. Yep. So uh, lots of opportunities. And uh, again, we're excited about how this has taken shape and um, basically just the uh, the feedback and the interactions we have with the uh, the students, the apprentices, has been so great. Yeah. Like we, we record um, videos for them three times a week, answering questions and things like that. And we just get to kick back and forth ideas and concepts and uh, you know, head scratchers and that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, it's been really a lot of fun. So uh, that's the Mortis and Tenon Apprenticeship Program. Yeah. So we're just like, we're just swimming in this stuff. We're yeah. just like There's a little always talking on. about people with how do you do things. And, you know, a part of the program, we also have reading assignments where we're reading uh, David Pye and Bill Copperthwaite thinking about craftsmanship in relation mm, to life right. and um, what is craftsmanship. And so we've been thinking about that kind of stuff a lot um, leading up to the program, but also uh, in the midst of the program as we're interacting with students uh, all of our students in the forums and through these videos talking about the heart of craftsmanship. And so this podcast episode, we wanted to uh, spend some time talking about that very question, defining craftsmanship. So this is not um, uh, so much a question of um, the, all the different kinds of crafts or um, you know the, the, noble, <laughs> the nobleness, the, the morality of crafts or something. This is just a question about what do we even mean by the word craftsmanship, right? That's a word that's uh, used a lot, thrown around. People clearly mean different things by it. And I think we've been very inspired by David Pye, who in 1968 wrote a book called The Nature and Art of Workmanship. And he said that this, this word is just plagued by um, confusion and people take this word, they want it to mean certain things that I am a craftsman and you are right. not a craftsman. You are not, and, right. Oh man. So he said, forget that. We need to think about this word in a totally different way. And that's been inspiring to us. And so we want to talk about that today. What do we mean by craftsmanship? And what I, what does the word actually mean? Because words do have meanings. And, yeah. and Pi was trying to get at that. Yeah. Um, Pi relates this story. It's um, this this old uh, story from uh, the ancient days of China. He's, uh, 
the, the quote here from his book is, uh, Tzu Lu said, if the Prince of Wei were waiting for you to come and administer his country for him, what would be your first measure? And the master, who's Confucius, said, it would certainly be to correct language. After Su Lu argues vehemently that this is a secondary issue in running a nation, Confucius comes back bluntly. You, how boorish you are. He then describes the importance of accuracy in defining terms. If language is incorrect, then what is said does not concord with what was meant. And if what is said does not concord with what was meant, what is to be done cannot be affected. So uh, Pai's point was, if we don't understand our own terminology and the words we use in communicating with each other, then conversation is basically pointless. We cannot, <laughs> we can't move an idea from point A to point B because yeah. we're not speaking the same language. So yeah. words are important. And yeah. uh, the, you know, as anyone who's listening, if you've dabbled in woodworking, if you've been a woodworker for 50 years, um, you've thought about this, mm -hmm. like why you do this and why, um, what draws you to working creatively with your hands? So um, these are things that we've all thought about. Yeah, and, I, and so I think what happens, what we found in, in interactions I've had, it seems like a lot of people are conflating um, a lot of different ideas. They're kind of collapsing a yeah, bunch of different like a words. cloud of ideas. Yeah, they're taking a bunch of different words and collapsing it into meaning the same thing. So craft and making and technology and... You know, they're trying to put them all to basically just mean, you know, yeah, making like things, yeah. like being creative, yeah. you know, right? So uh, maybe that's like an umbrella category, but they're all distinct words that, that mean different things. So, um, you know, where do we come up with this? How do we think about when we say, oh, wow, that's a master craftsman, that mm -hmm. look at the craftsmanship on that. Yeah. That's the question we're asking. What is meant by that? Yeah. Um, is that just... Uh, a certain type of tool that is being used? Yeah. Is that someone who has a, a certain uh, kind of training behind their name when they did right. that? I yeah. mean, what what is it about They've the, done their oh, 10,000 wow. hours. Their so, 10,000 yeah. hours, yeah. So we want to get at what is that. And the other thing is people are also using this word craft uh, so much. So it's not just craftsmanship, but the mm -hmm. word craft. Yeah. I mean, how many times have you seen S power companies yeah. and... Uh, you know, attorney offices, yeah, you know, or whatever. Uh, their whole marketing pitch is about, you know, we support craft, yeah. true craft. Which, and then they're, you know, making it look like oh, we have, you know, woodworkers hard at work in our yeah. attorney office, and that's why we're marketing. Exactly, like, or <laughs> you know, selling selling what? products using that. Um, so, if you can imagine this concept as like in. It, it's taken as having inherent value, right? Something crafted, something handcrafted. Mm. People value that. And so you can go into McDonald's and get a handcrafted milkshake, right? <laughs> that's from the machine that somebody pulled the lever on so it spit it out. But that's, <laughs> this is this is where we are. Like anywhere you go, any uh, drive-through fast food restaurant or any like uh, big box hobby store, there's there are these elements where they're marketing to you the value of craftsmanship through their uh, gimmicky plastic toys or or machine produced stuff. Mm -hmm. Like um, you know, it's it's kind of like the idea of uh, in in uh, like a, a big box hardware store uh, or home center, you can go in and buy 
this nice um, frame and panel looking door that's made out of vinyl and it has simulated wood grain. And it's like, well, why would you want that? Because there's, there's a perceived value to having something made in that way, even though it's just textured vinyl pressed yep. from a machine. It reminds us of craftsmanship. It right. reminds us of somebody who made that, and we appreciate yep. that. That's why we want the fake wood grain. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's a Canadian scholar um, who, she came up with this term, uh, craft washing. Yeah. And it's sort of, that's the kind of describing this phenomenon of applying the word craft to everything. <laughs> so you, right. you, know, you, you, you know, come from overseas, you get mass-produced uh, plastic products that you put on your cool fancy looking website and you, everything is about handmade you know crafted whatever and it's just mass-produced stuff and she's she's described that as craft washing yep. you're just applying this label wholesale as a marketing gimmick and so we're all i think we're a lot of us have heard this we're all getting used to this and it's kind of going in one ear and out the other now yeah it's getting a little old and the definition <laughs> is is lost essentially because yeah. the word has been used in so many different ways that don't that aren't really connected in any way with like humans making stuff. Yeah. So, so why even ask this question? Why don't we just say, ah, oh, whatever it is, whatever people think about it, you know, you have your own definition and there it is, who cares? So why would we? And I think the reason that we're interested in this is because it's really getting at what we value about craft. Mm. So when we look at something and we say, oh, wow, look at the craftsman of the craftsmanship of that. What I want to know is, what do we mean? Yeah. What are exactly are we valuing? So as a consumer, as a customer, we value that. But as a maker as well, there's something that is being held up. Yep. And it's not that it's rough texture and grungy coffee table. And it's not because... It's not you know, a palette table. Right? It's not because <laughs> it's necessarily sourced from somewhere or a certain kind of tool was used. You know, what is it about that that, that is really the heart of this? Yeah. So I think that's why it matters to me. That's why I'm interested in the discussion as a maker and as a consumer. Why do we value craftsmanship? Yeah. And, you know, this, this is an argument that's been going on for a long time. And then people... As with any argument, people will draw hard lines. They'll they'll climb a hill to to die upon it, basically. Um, and you know there there's definitely you know some some toes have been stepped on in this argument over the years. You know, on on one hand, you have um, individuals who are, let's say, you're a woodworker and every tool in your shop is powered. You have, you know, it's all machines and you get really defensive about the argument over craft because you want to say, hey, I'm, I'm a craftsman too, right? So that's one side of the argument. And the other is we've always heard of this, this caricature of the hand tool woodworker who's like pinkies up and snotty about every, you know, this, this snobbish um, woodworker who looks down upon everyone else, right? Like that's yeah. the the straw man. That's the stereotype mm -hmm. caricature of that. So you have these these two camps, and they're on opposite sides here of this spectrum that most woodworkers live on. And so when we look at this argument, we immediately uh, start thinking about those two camps, and you know they're like lobbing and grenades. And you're, at and each you're just other. trying to figure out who the other, which camp the other person's you know, exactly you know, where you know, member are you of. Here? Yeah, who are you, <laughs> friend or foe? Oh man. Um, so it's it it gets messy, and uh, I I don't think it needs to get messy. Yeah, um, and and I think that's the kind of thing. That's the reason Pi in his book, The Nature and Art of Workmanship, he was really hesitant 
to even use the word craftsmanship. Right. The, his book is called The Nature and Art of Workmanship. Mm-hmm. He, he just latched on to the word workmanship because he said, I'm trying to avoid the word craftsmanship because it's so abused. Now, he goes on to say, but if I must define craftsmanship, I will define it in this way. So he, he's willing to say, okay, I understand we need to have a definition and I'll give one, mm. but for this book, I'm just going to be talking, I'm going to use the word workmanship. So here's, here's his, his issue is that he's concerned about people hijacking this phrase. And so he's trying to, and they're trying to, you know, attribute some morality or some superiority to themselves. And uh, what he's trying to say is, okay, no, let's actually think about this a little bit more, uh, a little bit more technically, I guess you'd say, um, what is actually going on? What are the different kinds of work that happen? And how would you distinguish uh, different kinds of work? How, what is the heart of craftsmanship? Mm. And so he actually says this in his book. This is uh, probably, you've, you've heard this before, the workmanship of risk and workmanship of certainty. But he says this, if I must describe a meaning to the word craftsmanship, I shall say as a first approximation that it means simply workmanship using any kind of technique or apparatus in which the quality of the result is not predetermined, but depends on the judgment, dexterity, and care which the maker exercises as he works. The essential idea is that the quality of the result is continually at risk during the process of making. And so I shall call this kind of workmanship the workmanship of risk. So he's saying craftsmanship is bound up with uh, the judgment, dexterity, and care of the maker in the moment of the work happening, that that the outcome is dependent on the maker doing that, the skill to do that work, the judgment, dexterity, and care. But the degree to which something is predetermined, the outcome is predetermined, he calls that the workmanship of certainty. And again, so catch on to this. He's saying craftsmanship is defined, I'm going to call the workmanship of risk. So risk is at the the heart of this. But so again, you're, you're telling me that my fast food milkshake is not craftsmanship. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Maybe. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so I think this is a really interesting thing. Now, I want to, uh, I want to also remind at this point that there are all kinds of crafts that uh, a poet can be a craftsman, mm-hmm. right? So there's poetry, and you can have craftsmanship in different areas. It's not just manual work. That is what Pi is talking about, manual work. But when we're thinking about what is behind the word craftsmanship. Mm. Even if you just look up any dictionary definition, craftsmanship, the word skill is going to be prominent. Right. It's the idea of skill. And that's what I think what Pi is getting at. Um, and so I, I think this is helpful. I think he's basically trying to say um, we need to remove it from some romantic notions or some sort of superiority. We just need to say there's a kind of work that everything's jigged and your the involvement of the artisan is is not really that, um, you know, it, uh, determinative of the outcome. Mm. And then there's a kind of work that is totally free, and that that guy better he better be pretty good, yeah. or that thing's going to be messed up. And if he can do it well, well, then that's a craftsman. Yeah, I think that's what he's trying to get at is the the skill inherent in the maker, and the work itself, the kind of work, the degree to which it is dependent on that skill is craftsmanship. 
So um, I, I like the example of poetry. Mm-hmm. I feel like, um, you know, when you're, you're sending a text and your phone keeps trying to give you suggestions, it's trying to apply a jig to your text, to your communication. It's saying, is this what you mean to say? Mm-hmm. And so basically, if you want to, you can type one word and then have your predictive text. You can just keep hitting that button and it'll generate some sentence from yep. like, where did that sentence come from, right? Sure. It, it wasn't you, it wasn't your creative you know, ability. Mm-hmm. But if you are going to write a poem, you have basically all you know tens of thousands of words in the English language to draw from. You better apply some skill to that. Yeah, exactly. You know, so and, and it, here's an, then then what you do is let's say you write the poem, right? And you say, "Okay, I'm going to write this down." And you get on your computer and you start typing the letters, right? Yeah. So now think about this because I think what if you read Pi carefully, I think he's not saying there are two categories. There are, there's a kind of work that is completely risky mm. and there's a kind of work that is complete certainty, absolute right. certainty. He's not saying that. He's saying I think if you read between the lines, you read them carefully, he's saying there's a spectrum. He's, he's, he's laying out the spectrum, the continuum, as it were, of these two kinds of work. And a lot of tools fall somewhere on that, on that continuum. And so um, think about this. You write this poem. Yep. It's in your head or something. And you sit down on your computer and you start typing it. Right. T-H-E space, you yeah. know, whatever. Okay. So you have composed it. You've crafted what word you're going to use in this sentence, and you've decided you've chosen to write T H E, but the formation of those letters, yeah, it's jigged, right? It's you hit the T button, and the T that the comes. T looks like a T, right? So you can write the whole thing, and you've written it all out. It came from your mind, right? Mm-hmm. But the formation of the letters was jigged, right? And then you hit print, yep, and, and that comes out of the be printer, just what you saw on the screen. So. Right. Exactly. So you would say, I think you could say, Pi would say, so you have crafted the poem, mm-hmm. but you printed it. Right. You didn't, cr- the, the printer didn't craft the piece of paper. Like It right. just came out, right? And when you hit T, you didn't craft the letter T in right. that moment. You just hit the button. And so that's because there's really no skill involved with pressing the button T. Right. But there is skill involved with writing the poem. And so if you, you know, wrote in this, um, if you developed your long hand and you had this beautiful cursive and you wrote the poem, mm-hmm. of, of course, then yeah. formulating the T would be involving skill. Yeah. And, it's mesmerizing watching a good calligrapher at oh, work. Oh, man. You know, just the flowing strokes. And that's way better than, you know, just having a, a machine print it. I mean, it's way more mesmerizing. Yeah. And so, of course, what Pi is trying to get past, and I think... I would imagine, based on my conversations in the past, some readers now are kind of rankled and they're kind of annoyed saying, what are these guys trying to say? Are they trying to say, don't print anything? Don't use computers? (laughs) That everything's supposed to be handwritten? And if you're thinking that, you got to get over that. That's not what's being argued. Pi's not saying the way things ought to be. What he's saying is, what we mean by craftsmanship is the exercise of skill. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really relevant to... Um, to this discussion, but I'll have a there's a there's a but there's a little asterisk there, and the asterisk was placed there uh, for me by uh, a scholar named Glenn Adamson, mm-hmm. and he is a, a, a kind of a scholar of craft. He's written a bunch of books, and they all have the word craft in them. Nice. <laughs> He's very focused on this topic, and he basically says, you know, there's a lot to appreciate in pie, and we appreciate that, but I will say. Uh, he's a little stuffy. 
He's uh-huh. a little bit technical. Maybe he used the word picky. I can't remember what the word is, but um, but Adamson basically says his framing is quite interesting because he's saying, okay, you have this predetermined outcome. You say, I want to make X, this final X, this product. And so I see the design in my mind. And so now I need to use tools uh, to complete that thing, that, that object. And so uh, he says craftsmanship is then bound up with your ability to for your hands to execute what's in your mind. Hmm. So what Adamson says is it's kind of interesting because he basically is taking, by stripping all the uh, all the gooey stuff out of the discussion of craftsmanship and making it purely scientific, right. this mechanical, technical right. mechanical description, he's treating a maker like a machine. You're right. He's saying craftsmanship is bound up with how machine-like you can be in your execution of every cut. Mm-hmm. And that maybe that's a caricature, uh, but I think that's kind of what Glenn Adamson is pushing on a little bit to say, hmm, yeah, that's a little funny. To to it's sort of um, acceding to this idea that um, machines really are able to do everything perfect, and right. a maker has exercises craftsmanship only to the degree to which as close as you mimic get a to machine, machine, right? Yeah. So I think it's an it's an astute observation, and I do get that. I mean, I make that makes sense to me. So there, there must be something more to it than just mechanical replication of emotion. Right, right. Yeah, how, how able you are to make that perfect piece as uh, modeled off of a machine piece of furniture. Um, yeah, I mean, we always have that, the, um, the shorthand in mind of the like Ikea bookshelf, right? And, or the, 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 the Campbell soup can how perfect uh, an object that is. It's a perfect right cylinder, right? With like hundreds of years ago, it would have been held in awe for its um, mechanical machined perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for for Pi to be looking at measuring skill by how close to the ideal design we can get with our hands is it's definitely a mechanical, a, a reductionistic way of looking at it. Yeah, um, to a degree. Yeah, and he even in the book he acknowledges that different uh, products, as it were, um, they have different levels of tolerance. So uh, um, a split rail fence is ought not to be worked to the same degree yeah, as smooth plane every board. surface. Right. That's not what he's saying. He's not <clears throat> saying that. He's saying there are different tolerances, but craftsmanship is sensitive to the tolerances. But within tolerance, mm-hmm. it should accord with uh, workmanship. So. With the, with the design. So there's this anthropologist uh, by the name of Tim Ingold who picks up on Pi in, in, a, in a really helpful way, I think. I think what he draws on, he draws on the strengths of Pi, but then kind of alongside Glenn Adamson, um, not, maybe not consciously, but in the same way, sort of pokes at this, a little, this mechanistic, reductionistic way of thinking about craftsmanship. And he talks uh, a lot about, he focuses on the words in Pi's definition, the judgment, dexterity, and care. Hmm. So Pi says this is um, this is the, the outcome is dependent on the judgment, dexterity, and care. And Ingold says, ah, okay, let's hold on to that a little bit. I think yeah. there's something more to it. That, don't read over that. Don't go past it. So what he does is this. He has this interesting. His book is um, this one book is um, the perception of the environment, and he in the the third. Uh, section, the last section of his book, he's talking about skill. 
And so he's talking about, he's contrasting that with technology. And I think a lot of people think of skill and technology as um, coinciding side by side, mm. or they could. And he actually frames it a little bit differently. And it's because of this etymological um, foundation, that understanding the word technology. What is the word technology? What right. does that word, where does it come from? What does it mean? And techne is the Greek word for art or craft. Mm -hmm. So it's it's making something with skill, this art, craft. And ology, we know what that means. Right. It's what, How would you define ology? Yeah, like, I mean, any any word you tack an ology to the end, it's, it's a scientific pursuit of yeah, that a, thing. Exactly. That thing you like. Yeah, so the Greeks had this notion of techne, art, mm -hmm. craft, right? And... Um, but then at the same time, in, in classical literature, this word emerged, technology, technology. And what they meant, they took the word art and they coupled it with reason or science, right? right? And so sometimes it was applied to um, the art of reasoning, like an artful, being artfully persuasive in your argument, okay. right? A scientific yeah. approach. But we actually mean it in the opposite. It's sort of taking, it's the, the reason of art or the, the scientific approach to art right. making or craft. That's the whole idea of what, when you and I say the word technology, we're not, we don't mean somebody who's skillfully art, you know, a rhetorician or something. Right. We right. mean it's a scientific application of production, of right. making things. And that that is a, a recent phenomenon, right? Yeah. The, the, the applying the ology to any techne is, yeah. is a recent, that's like an enlightenment kind of scenario. It, and that's kind of what he's arguing. I mean, obviously it's got roots in this classical literature, but as time goes on, it becomes more and more as technological um, thinking became more and more manifest, it became available. I mean, it's, it is interesting that, you know, and in, in the ancient world, there were a lot of things that were invented that didn't that there weren't the capacity to exercise. Da Vinci say he came up with a lot of stuff that he yeah. couldn't do. He couldn't right. make his flying machine because right. there wasn't the infrastructure to actually have it happen. Yeah. So he could conceive of it. He just couldn't. He didn't have the means to make it happen. Right. And so, in the same way, I think um, that in classical uh, literature, when they're talking about technology, there's the seed of an idea here. They're saying we want to think about making things, but in a way that is sort of a um, a systematic way, a, a more mm -hmm. efficient way, a way to try to, and this is like the seed of this, you know, ushers in over time, it develops and develops and develops and it becomes enlightenment and it becomes the industrial revolution. And it, right. all of a sudden this technology explosion is founded in this idea of taking craft and technologizing it, turning it scientific, right. turning it industrial. So I think that's interesting because what that says is, if, if someone's trying to conflate, it undermines the idea that craft and technology are the same thing. Right. Yeah. Techne yep. and technology obviously can't be yeah, the same it's thing. It's two different things. It's two yep. different things. So uh, the argument of, and I think um, we've talked about Ingold um, does not file things in this way, but you talk about things like um, stone tool technology. Yeah. Right, he would say that's not actually a thing, right? Right. So the what then what you, where this goes, where he talks about it, is he he distinguishes between um, craft or techne and technology, and so he would say, so um, 
there is a time that was pre-technological. Right. I mean, technically. <laughs> right. There's a time oh that, there was a time before technology. If you look at um, a lot of um, uh, history of technology books, I have five volumes sitting over there on the oh, shelf. Yeah. Uh, the They're his, massive. History of technology. Yeah. And they start with a stone. A stone is technology. And that was the mm. first, uh, first piece of technology that man used and mm-hmm. it was, you know, whatever. And so this, this evolutionary sense of technology, this notion that a rock becomes a hammer, becomes a power hammer, becomes a, and then it goes right. all the way through this evolutionary definition of technology that, that says everything is technology yeah. has created a quite an interesting problem when we talk about technology. Because um, this, this recording device, this computer is technology right. and uh, st- the systematic application of something is technology and mm-hmm. uh, all of a sudden everything becomes technology because yeah. we're not clear about what we mean by it. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, really the, the scientific approach to everything is just in the water. It's, it's the air we breathe today. Everything is approached by this, whether it's, um, you know, the, the economic manufacture of an item or the way to make milkshakes or anything like that, the, the pursuit is, um, it's like rabidly efficient and you need a, a, um, a scientific approach to get there. You mm-hmm. need to have your lists of data. Like um, when we want to re- reduce everything down to its constituent parts to figure it out, that is a scientific approach to something, which is not the way that human beings have approached nature and reality for millennia up until mm-hmm. the past few hundred years. Yeah. So we were not reductionists so much before um, the Enlightenment. Right. So um, and it doesn't mean that everyone was slow necessarily. No. Um, you know, I think you about, might argue the other otherwise. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, in Japanese uh, culture, they when they talk about um, was it Toshio Adate was talking about one of the greatest insults to a Japanese craftsman right. would be that he's a slow worker. He's a slow worker. He's precise, but he's slow. Right. Ooh. That is a massive insult yeah. because slowness is not good. We're right. not talking about, oh yeah, but that's in you know the 20th century. No, no, no. This is mm-hmm. throughout a Japanese craft heritage. It's insulting to be described as a slow worker. So, so um, in many traditions, uh, I mean, no one really said, "Oh, it's so great that you're so slow." I really appreciate that. Right. But but the idea of of craft, the idea that um, that someone is able to do what they want to do. So if you have agency, agency is the ability to achieve an outcome. You say, "I see what I want to do," and so I'm going to exercise the ability. I'm going to use my hand to make that thing. You have agency if you're able to do that. And so um, agency and craftsmanship are all kind of combined together. And so if we think about craftsmanship and we think about, okay, if we're going to make something, what is it about the making? What is it about the, the motion of the hand, as it were? What is it about that that is so bound up with, oh, wow, craftsmanship? Right, right, right. And so if we think about these words, judgment, dexterity, and care, judgment, dexterity, and care, uh, here's what Ingold says. Listen to this. He says that skilled practice is not just the application of mechanical force to exterior objects, but rather that whatever practitioners do to things is grounded in an attentive, perceptual involvement with them, or in other words, that they watch and feel 
as they work. And so there's this idea that it's attentive. So the work that's happening has judgment, dexterity, and care. Right. That there's this sort of reflexive, responsive uh, uh, interaction with the work that is actually happening in the moment. There's a classic uh, illustration in phenomenology, the this, uh, philosophy of uh, the perception of the environment, studying phenomena um, by Merleau-Ponty. And he's talking about, uh, I think it was Merleau-Ponty who came up with this first, but it's this idea of the blind man walking down the road with his cane. Mm. And the question is, he's using his cane to sense the world. Right. right? And so the question is, where does he end? Right. Does he end at his hand and the cane is no not part of him or is, is the cane becoming part of him? And he's sensing and engaging the world through the cane. And uh, Tim Ingold picks this up and he talks about, you know, carving with a chisel. Where does the craftsman end? Right. Is it at the edge of the tool or is it at his hand, right? And so what happens is you've if you've carved before with a chisel, you know, you're, you're, you're cutting into the wood, you see the piece of wood, you understand it, you know where that grain dives because you just planed that board. Right, yeah. And you're pushing with the chisel and you feel a little bit of feedback, very subtle. You maybe aren't even fully conscious. It's not at the forefront of your mind, but you sense it in your hands. And so you adjust, you shift a little bit. And that is really picking up on the attentiveness or the attunement. So what I would say is the if you think about this, if we're going to say, in gold, what are y'all? What are you saying? All of this attentiveness and understanding right. the Summarize. environment, and we got all the wood and the tools and all that kind of stuff. What I would say is to boil it down. Is I would say skill craftsmanship is related to skill, and that this idea of skill is attuned dexterity. Now those two words are kind of weird. They sound funny, but what I think is important is it's it's bound up with this judgment, dexterity, and care. Yeah. So you have dexterity. Your your hand is able to do what you're trying to do, but it's also attuned dexterity. It's a dexterity that is aware of or in harmony. Is the word attuned is like tuning a guitar. It's in harmony with the environment. Right. It knows that piece of wood. You know. Uh, that tool. You also know that your right shoulder is a little sore from the volleyball game yep. on Saturday. And so you got to be gentle. And you're attuned to that as well. And that it's a cloudy day and that yep. the humidity is high. And so that's attunement. It, and that's the heart of skill is that you're able to, to exercise to, uh, your hands to do something, but it's also aware of and attentive to what's around you. So I think that's, that's built into Pi's definition but I think it goes beyond what Pi is really focusing on because he's he seems to be kind of stop a little bit shy of that and just say, yeah, craftsmanship is the ability for your hand to guide the tool. Right, like a machine would. True, <laughs> true. Right. But what's what's involved with that? Mm -hmm. What is the domain of creativity, like the the sphere or whatever, like what you're actually doing at the shaving horse, everything that's involved in affecting the work, are you aware of it? What's affecting your judgment, dexterity, and care. Yeah. And I think that is a really fruitful, interesting thing to be thinking about. Yeah, and mentioning the shaving horse reminds me of the article by um, Dr. Mike Epworth about the um, the draw knife and the butterfly effect, mm. right? Yeah. So uh, it's sort of a similar idea. He talks about these two chair makers in Australia, um, you know, a hundred some odd years ago, um, and on one hand, you have Jimmy Possum and those who came after him in that chair-making tradition who made their furniture 
all with a draw knife, not turning it. And so you have this other chair maker, George Peddle, who um, made his chairs on a lathe. And so when he needed to increase production, he got more lathes, more machines. Uh, he had to hook up to steam power. He, you know, you can picture all the overhead belts running all the machines and everything like that. And so um, uh, Epworth's, um, his whole summary was that a draw knife is not a tool that you can use in the same way as a lathe, which is a machine. A draw knife requires engagement with every stroke. You are adjusting to the wood, you're adjusting to um, funkiness in the grain. Every slice is different and it's always at a different angle and you're constantly moving, constantly making tiny unconscious judgment calls mm -hmm. about what your hands are doing, how your hands are engaging the tool to engage the edge in the material. Um, and a lathe is different. A lathe can just be a, a, a machine, right? Mm -hmm. Just buzzing around making predictable cylinders because of the nature of the, the jigging, right? Mm -hmm. A draw knife is about as minimally jigged a tool as you can have, really. Yeah, I mean, it's got a bevel, but that's about yeah, it. Yeah, that's it. And yeah. so um, it's it's interesting to think along those lines, like what what is going on when um, you watch someone who's really quite skilled and fast with a draw knife and they're working so quickly and, and your eyes can't even follow the action, but they are absorbing reams of information mm. about that work through yep. through their hands, their fingertips, through the tool, through what they see, through what they hear, and processing it all in a way that, you know, their their brains, their neural pathways have all been established by practicing over and yep. over and over. It's habit. Yeah. yeah. And so they are um, engaging that work, processing faster than a computer could, all the input and adjusting, making micro adjustments. And it's it's just amazing to see. And you go, wow, they made that look easy. Yeah. That's, and, that's and what skill exactly, is. Exactly. Exactly. That's the whole thing. When they say, oh, wow, you make it look so easy. Right. I think that is a great yeah. observation right there. Yeah. If someone's making it look easy and then you sit down at that draw knife, you go, oh, oh man, this is actually hard. really tough. Right? That is craftsmanship. Yep. That is somebody who is attuned, who mm -hmm. has dexterity, someone who is able to uh, read all of the relevant factors. Yeah. Again, the grind of the wood, the, the way your hand's holding it, the feel of the handle, the how sharp the edge is, and oh, there's that one nick, you know, a third of the way down yep. on the edge or whatever. All of that is accounted for. And that is the idea of craftsmanship. Yeah. So um, uh, Steve Lattice sent me an ad from, a, I think it was a UK magazine. He said he thought that we'd get a kick out of it. <laughs> and it was this ad and it said something like, become a craftsman overnight. <laughs> and it said it said no special skills needed, and oh, it was so it's basically amazing. this kit for doing this like bent metal work to make these um, you know like uh, cheesy looking chintzy looking lamps and stuff where you just bend this metal work into into nice wavy shapes, so you can become overnight become a craftsman with no special skills needed. Wow! I was I pretty much have decided to order already, even though I think the ad was from the eighties or yeah. something, but maybe there's so still I think what's interesting about that is why, so I would say this, I would say, is there something wrong with making something without the use of skill? Well, no, mm -mm. of course not. Yeah, people have done it. <laughs> that's, for... that's great. Yeah. But the question is, I, I would want to ask them, why did you use the word craftsman? Mm. Why did you want to say become right. a craftsman right. with no skill required? Yeah. Why did you? Why do you know that's valuable to use the word craftsman? I think it's because we're appreciating 
that craftsmen are skilled. Mm-hmm. And so they're we saying something you to can have it without the skill. Right. So I think um, it just makes me think of, you know, we're talking about craftsmanship, this idea of skill and attunement is uh, can be applied to all sorts of things. If you think about, I would say, I'm, I'm aligning really, really closely craftsmanship and skill. Mm-hmm. I, I, I realize that, that skill, the heart of craftsmanship is skill, all kinds of skills. And so uh, a crafts, you can craft a poem by exercising great skill with you mm-hmm. know, your language and the use of meter and all this kind of stuff. So skill can be, think about what things, what uh, fields, uh, what uh, domains of life are skill called upon? Well, everyone, right. everyone. Every so there are one. social skills. Yeah. So when you, it's interesting if you think about all this stuff in light of, okay, let's apply this to social skills. You go to a party, mm-hmm. you get invited by a friend to this party. You know nobody in the room. Right. You show up. And there are some people, like me, for instance, will show up and go, oh boy, I don't know anybody. I'm really nervous. Yeah. Or people and like me who wouldn't even go. Who wouldn't even go. <laughs> and I Really, you're not good at small talk, right? Because I just it feels so awkward, and yeah. I don't know. I'll and just go hang out by the pretzels, and you go find someone that maybe you see one person you know. This is what I do. If I see someone right. I, I kind you're of there. know, I'll like run over there, like, hey, yeah. and I'll just try to hide in the corner because I don't have enough social skill to be able to walk right. up and say, "Hey, I'm Joshua. How you doing? Oh, where are you from? Oh, that's so cool." Right. That person is attuned to the room, can mm-hmm. read people's faces, can read the environment, and can engage with it and say. Hey, how you doing? And, and can create something. It's like this poesis, right. you know. This yeah, like this. That is a creative this, process. Yeah. So that those are social skills. To lack those skills is to um, to hide behind something. Mm-hmm. So you can say, I want someone else to introduce me, right? I want to bring something else in. I want to outsource my social skills to someone else and kind of sit in on someone else's conversation and kind of right. nod along. Yeah. Or you know, I'm going to go in the corner and text somebody and use hide behind that. Right. Um, so that would be not having social skills in that, in that setting. So if you think also, I mean, my wife is a piano teacher and it, I think about this a lot because I hear about her, how her lessons went. You right. know, she comes home from right. lessons, they say, how'd it go? And she'll tell me a story. And you think about this, you think about uh, Julia is sitting down with uh, these kids, uh, you know, six to, you know, 16 years old or whatever. And uh, she's, there, there is no manual. There's no instruction book to say, this is how you teach children mm. music, Yeah. right? There, there are books that attempt to give you some uh, broad formulas and some kind of helpful curriculum, but a teacher will tell you teaching is not curriculum. Right. <laughs> teaching is yeah. skillful. Yeah. And so what she uh, needs to do is know this student and be attuned right. to what's not only who this student is, but also how the student walks in the room. Maybe, you know, maybe this student is having a rough day and you can see it, right? And you know, when she's in this mode, she really is in cooperative. She's not cooperating. She's exhausted. You know, she just came back from vacation. She's tired. You know that uh, it's a cloudy day and she's grumpy. And so you're going to adjust. So Julia is going to adjust to how does she interact with this student? Yeah. Or you have point out real quick that zoom does not allow for that kind of nuance it's true it actually and actually that's a good illustration because um julia has done a few zoom lessons Mm -hmm. and 
she's basically cut that off saying, I, I can't do this right. because I can't read you. Right. I can't be there with you. And I can't, I can't teach. Yeah. You could watch a YouTube video, but I can't read what's going on. Yeah. I, I read this interesting article about why is it so exhausting to be on a Zoom meeting? And basically it's that we, we as humans are so used to the unconscious um, communication going on. With Zoom, you're seeing the person, the person from the neck up in like an artificial situation, they're sitting in their the Golden room. Gate Bridge behind yeah, with the gold yeah exactly you or whatever. Or whatever. <laughs> and so you, your mind is like struggling to communicate because it's been reduced to words and some facial expressions, mm-hmm. um, and so it it becomes exhausting because we're not getting all the input that we're used to. It's yep. like being in a, a rubber room and you're just trying to find something solid. Mm. Um, that's, that's the world of zoom. Yeah. And, and so that is related in that, um, being able to take in the environment to to be attuned to what's going on is really important to success, to be able to do what you want to do. But, but technology is trying to, the whole goal of making a science out of art or craft, um, productive things, uh, we're going to, we're going to give you a device and we're going to replace this. We're going to disburden you. We're going to take the burden off your shoulders. You don't have to be skilled. You can be a craftsman without skill. We're going to disburden you by giving you a device. That's the whole aim of technology. Right. And it can be a noble aim that disburdening somebody, right? That's great. But it's important to recognize that is what technology is doing. Right. Is it's disburdening. Right. I mean, Matthew Crawford put it this way. He said, it means to introduce as little psychic friction as possible between the user's intention and its realization. So that goes back to kind of what uh, David Pye talked about when he talked about, um, you know, craftsmanship as being the ability to to, um, create as close as possible to an ideal form, right? That's Mm -hmm. what Crawford is saying. This is what technology is meant to do. It's meant to... Um, make it as smooth as possible to get that ideal form mm-hmm. repeatedly and predictably and and remove that barrier from you. And I think removing the barrier means removing variables. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right? Jigging. So if, yeah, so if you think about a piano, right? You play a piano and you have all these keys and there's a lot of emotion that can come through a piano. The, mm-hmm. um, you, you press a key really hard and it's going to sound different than if you gently t- yep. touch. And also... Um, if you hit the wrong key, you're not going to get the right note, right? Right. My son, I just gave him this really cool thing, thanks to Brendan Gaffney. It's called an Orba. It's an Artifon Orba. It's for making electronic music. It's really fun. It's really cool. It's this little black ball that is a synthesizer and a drum machine and a loop machine all in one. Uh, It's super fun to play with, but it was interesting because my wife, who plays piano, uh, we all were playing with this thing, and we're, we were transfixed. It's so fun. I highly recommend it, by the way. <laughs> um, but it really lowers the bar, the skill level, mm-hmm. that anyone can make music on this thing. And so it's fun to be able to play around. I will say, after two hours of playing with this thing, I got a little bored mm-hmm. because it was so easy to make stuff. But I handed it to my wife, and she picked it up, and she started playing. Uh, she recorded the bass line and she recorded some chords. Then she asked me to put a sick beat on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Cause you're the sick beat guy. I told her I'd make a sick I'll beat drop for a her. Sick beat. Uh, so I recorded a beat over that. Uh, and then she got to the lead and she started playing 
uh, what was she playing? She was trying to play um, Pachelbel Cannon. That's what it was. Okay. So she was trying to record this with a sick beat behind it. Wow. <laughs> Our family's kind of weird. So, but then she started wanting to play the melody over it. And she started trying to find the, the notes and she realized, wait, oh, weird. It's all pentatonic. She didn't have all the notes available to her. And so she said, oh, that's so funny because I can't play what I'm trying to play. But the reason they're doing that probably is because when you play a lead with a pentatonic scale, it always sounds awesome. Mm -hmm. Right. So anyone can pick it up and just poke at the notes and it's going to sound cool. And that is another illustration of what technology is trying to do is it's trying to eliminate variables and to make, um, make it easier to achieve success. Yeah. So you got to take some of that out and you got to replace that, outsource the ability. So the key always, the bass note is always going to sound pretty awesome. Right. And then those those pads are actually kind of sensitive, so you can do it light or hard or whatever, but still the bass note's always going to sound awesome. Yeah. And you're going to hit the right note and you're always in the same key. Yeah. You're going to do it right because you're... You're, you're destined for success, yeah. right, with that. So it's interesting talking about that in terms of technology because I think of kind of the difference between uh, Mac OS versus, say, Windows versus, say, Linux, right? Yeah, sure. So it's it's that spectrum where, where Mac, where Apple has so cleaned up the interface. Mm. It's so clean, it's intuitive, but if you want to change something fiddly, <laughs> Uh, you're going to have a hard time. It's a headache because all that is hidden. It's obscured from the user because most users are fine with their nice streamlined interface. Uh, So some people gravitate, you know, towards like Windows or something because it gives you some more options or stuff. For other people, that's not enough and they want to go to like a Linux type of thing or it's like Android versus Android is a Linux type operator and then you have... um, your iOS for your iPhone. And it's just different things for different people. The people who want more adaptability, they want to be able to customize more stuff. They are actually they actually move away from the Apple products because yeah, exactly. there's not that ability to to do that, the change your your pentatonic scale, you know, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I mean, and that is um one of the reasons I gravitate toward Apple products for the production of this magazine, because to be able to do, to host a podcast, to manage a website, to uh, use the editing software in our videos, to design the magazine, to uh, do all right. that kind of stuff. It's all I, seamless. I only have one life and mm-hmm. I can't be uh, highly skilled at all those things. So I think technology has been really great to be able to help us to de-skill something so that it's attainable, so we Mm -hmm. all can get in on it, and that's great. However, I will say, I don't feel, uh, if if the goal is to try to achieve some sort of satisfaction of, I am able to do this now, uh, I think David Pye and uh, Ingold and others, uh, Albert Borgman would say, well, you didn't actually like do that you you selected it right. and you pressed yeah. the button but you didn't you don't have the skill to do that right um and it's not to take away from how exciting it is to have something produced mm-hmm. but i think if we're thinking about wanting to cultivate satisfaction and agency being able to make stuff and you know engage in craftsmanship we have to be really clear about what that path is right and it's not by choosing options and pushing buttons right. it's by saying I want to learn how to do it. Yeah. 
I mean, it the the ultimate expression of that sort of thing, u- utilizing technology to make a process just seamless and approachable for anyone, is is George Jetson. How he'd get up <laughs> and he'd go into work at uh, Spacely Sprockets, and his job was to hit one button at the beginning of the day and then hit it again at the end of the day. That was his job, right? Because everything else is so hyper technologized that he doesn't have to do anything else. And mm-hmm. so that's his skill, and he's he's the guy for the job, right? Um, and so we we can see we we find that funny, like it was a caricature back in the the '60s, like that's the you know '50s '60s, that's like the jet age. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where we're all going, and and this technology is going to make work so much easier, and we'll have all this free time, and because we won't have to spend so much time building skill, developing skill, honing skill. Mm-hmm. Um, doing this, a very physical work. Yeah. So let's hold on. Let's pause here for a second. Yeah. I can hear Uh-oh. someone saying, what are you trying Wait to say? Minute. Are you trying to say that if I use a table saw or if I use uh, a router table or if I use a, C- a desktop, uh, uh, tabletop CNC machine mm-hmm. that I'm basically George Jetson? Are we saying that? No. We don't not want a, to say that. So th- I think that's one of the things... The, the reason people get emotional about it, they have a strong visceral reaction to discussions of craftsmanship is because there is sort of this like two camp mentality. Us versus them. And so that is, uh, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is um, George Jetson, of course, is a, an absurd extreme. Yes. But what we're talking about is what is the heart of craftsmanship? When we mm-hmm. really appreciate someone who makes it look easy, who's able to do something, who's um, exercising skill... What we're saying is, we're what we're appreciating is the degree to which they're not dependent on something else to guide them through the process, or right. to uh, relieve the burden of it, or to you know, come up with the design themselves, or whatever. Whether it's you know going to be um, the 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 ability to guide the tool or design as well. It's like mm-hmm. designing a poem. It's the same right, idea. Right, you design right. a piece of furniture. Now you can mm-hmm. use plans and you can make it. No one's going to say. Wow! Look at the this design. It's so amazing what you did. Yeah. Well, you'd say, well, no, I just use plans. Right. And that's okay. It's just you can't take the credit. Right. For you it, right? did not design that. Right. right. And so, um, so I think all of that is is uh, connected. Uh, it reminds me of um, uh, Joseph Moxon wrote in his seventeen oh three mechanic exercises. He has this really interesting. Uh, this really interesting thing in the beginning in in the preface to his book, he's talking about uh, handcraft. And this is what he says about Joseph, uh, about uh, handcraft. Handcraft signifies cunning or slight or craft of the hand, which cannot be taught by words, but is only gained by practice and exercise. So then he, he explains that he's going to go on and lay out the basic principles of the trade. Um, he says that every good workman must follow and that by observing them, he may, according to his stock of ingenuity and diligence, sooner or later, inure his hand to the cunning or craft. That is great. Yeah. So it's really interesting because he's basically saying, I'm going to talk about craftsmanship, but I can't really write about it. Right. It's something that you got to do on your own. Because I can't put it into words. That's not what we're talking about. You have to do it yourself. You have to exercise yourself. And it's only through this practice that you can inure your hand 
this and develop this cunning uh, connection to craft. Wow. I mean, so it's really interesting because talking about um, uh, engagement, you know, when we say about engaging with an operation or we were talking earlier about the draw knife or the chisel or even the cane, right? That That is a tool for um, engaging so that your senses can Mm -hmm. be more drawn into the process. And when we talk about um, machines or mechanizing a process, those things are are inherently disengaging. They are meant to remove you from some part, some creative part of that process. For the sake of a better outcome. Right, a more predictable outcome. So um, like... The, the always the shorthand is uh, for me as when you think of a machine in the shop, you think table saw, right? People set up their their shops and you put the big unisaw right in the middle. That's like the sun and the planets orbit it. And um, but the thing with running a table saw, and I've run a table saw a lot, right? In the back in the old boat shop, uh, is that you have to for your own sake. <laughs> for your own safety, you have to disengage from it. You are wrapping yourself up in safety eyewear, hearing protection, uh, a mask, there's there's gonna be dust, and uh, you're not getting anywhere close to that cutting edge. In fact, there are several layers of, of uh, safety gadgets to keep you away from the cutting edge because uh, for your own protection, you have to draw back and disengage from the process that's going on there. Mm. Right. So um, not only is the fact that the the source of power is being taken from you, it's being drawn from elsewhere, the the accuracy or dexterity, like the fence is doing the straightening of the cut for you. Right. You're not doing that. I mean yeah, you you're, push you're it against feeding the fence. It. Yes, you're you're pushing yep. it through and you've got a, a push block and you've got maybe um, something to hold it against the fence. Mm-hmm. But those variables are being removed for a, a more predictable outcome. Mm-hmm. It, you are disengaging. Mm-hmm. So um, if we talk about this, um, you're saying attuned dexterity, this, this engagement that is, is ne- a necessary part of craft, mm-hmm. when you start removing places where you can be attuned and dexterous, you're mm-hmm. removing the human element from from handcraft, yeah, right, and it, I mean, I think a lot of people would say, "Well, yeah, I don't really want to do. I don't want my stock prep to be craft." Then, according right. to your I'd definition, have, I'd just right. rather have the stock machine done. prepped. And I would stock. say, okay, fair enough. But I think what's interesting is it's it's part of a trajectory. Saying the the degree to which something is mechanized mm-hmm. is the degree to which you're moving away from craftsmanship. Right. And it's not because of the power source. And I think that's where a lot of people get confused. They think, oh, but what if it's just, it's got, it's the tailed apprentice, it's the right. band saw, it's the table saw, it's the power source. Mm-hmm. But what if the power is meat power, it's in your arm, forget power source. Right. That's not, that's not the relevant point. It's the degree to which the outcome is predetermined. It's mm-hmm. jigged. It's got a fence. It's got a guide. It's somehow locked in. I would say one of the, the um, you think about a miter box. Yeah, Miller's Falls miter box, highly workmanship of certainty. Mm-hmm. You put that thing down, if you clamp it down, all you're really doing at that point, in my experience, is you're basically, you're the power source. You're, the you're power. just pushing yep. this back off and front and back, front and back. But the 90 degrees, or and then the angle, or whatever you set, is 
fixed. Yeah. So I don't feel uh, like, oh yeah, wow, look how good I am at cutting miters on this thing. No, I just, I'm the power source, right? And so there may be a really good place for using a miter box. Like when we were making the box sets, right. we used the miter box because we said- We had hundreds we of had, pieces that yeah, needed to be square. We had tons and tons and tons of cuts to make. That's great. But what we were really excited about doing was the handcrafted. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, it's like the dovetails, cutting the yeah. dovetails by hand, as opposed to using a jig to right, have to make the formation of that identical. joint. So, um, yeah, it's so it reminds me of I once had this tour, and I really my whole family went. We really enjoyed. We got this tour of a, a furniture production. I would call it a factory. It was a small scale, um, family run furniture maker, and. Um, it was it was really great, and they so they prided themselves on being one of the last uh, made by hand furniture places, right in in the U.S. or whatever. And so I went in with high hopes, and what, as it turns out, what is meant by that is that hand tools are the last thing to touch the furniture, right? Every surface has a hand plane or hand scraped, hand smoothed finish. Mm -hmm. However every other aspect of making is done on machines. Mm -hmm. So you, you gotta ask yourself, is that the last stroke with the smoothing plane to get that hand plane finish? The same thing as um, applying faux wood graining to a vinyl door. Mm. Is that the same as saying it's a hand crafted milkshake? Yeah, I mean, I would say there's also, it's, if we're talking about skill and, and craft, I think there is, you could, Maybe think of it in terms of like, um, it's, an engineer is a highly skilled individual. Oh yeah, you know, but an engineer is working within the field of engineering, and mm -hmm. so some woodworkers will talk about treating woodworking like it's engineering. And I think the more mechanized you get, if you're a highly skilled engineer, and your medium happens to be wood, then you're highly skilled in creating the process. Right. But what Pi is concerned about is the moment of action. Where the, mm. where the the wood is being shaped, as it were, and so he's saying, is the outcome of that operation fixed? And so an engineer can be creative and craft this poem. It's like the poem analogy: can craft the poem, write the words, put it all together, and then ask, you know, his buddy, "Hey, can you type this up and print it for me?" Mm. That's like engineering. It's like coming up with and designing, and that there's a whole craft to that. But then the actual execution of the thing, typing and printing is not connected to the craftsmanship of engineering. Right. So I think those things are related and it doesn't mean it again it's not putting anyone in categories these kinds of people. If these people touch these tools then they're in that category and these right. kinds of people. No, 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 no. Yeah. The whole point is just uh, distinguishing and understanding how different uh, tools, machines, uh, instruments work and then trying to identify your goals. So there's one more example that Moxon gives, which I think draws this out. In 1703, again, his, his text, he's describing a particular operation. So he had said in his preface, I'm going to just talk about stuff that can't be talked about. <laughs> I'm going to talk about craft, handcraft, right. and your, your hand uh, that will have to develop cunning. Um, so here's one uh, example of a place in which he, he tries to get at it. He tries to put into words what's going on um, very superficially, but here's what he says. He's describing edge jointing boards with a hand plane, making an edge joint, which if you've done that before, you know it's hard. Mm -hmm. 
He says, The hand must be carried along the whole length with an equal bearing weight, and so exactly even and upright to the edges of the board that neither side of the plane incline either inward or outwards, but that the whole breadth be exactly square on both its sides, supposing its sides straight. So will two edges of two boards, when thus shot, lie so exactly flat and square upon one another, that light will not be discerned betwixt them. But yet it is counted a piece of good workmanship in a joiner to have the craft of bearing his hand so curiously even the whole length of a long board, and yet but a slight to those whom practice hath inured the hand to. That's really long. But at the end, he's basically saying all this, here's what the operation looks like. This is what you have to keep in mind. This is what you have to be attuned to. And he says at the end there, um, it is counted a piece of good workmanship to have the craft of bearing his hand so curiously even. <laughs> Curious, Curious in the old yeah. sense. 1703, he's meaning like so skillfully even. Right. Right? So the, the craft of bearing his hand so skillfully even down the whole length, and yet it is but a slight to those whom practice hath inured the hand to. Meaning it's easy for the guy who's done his whole life. Right. Yeah. The you one know? who has skill. Yeah. And so he's getting at this. He's saying, here's here's the domain of attentiveness or whatever. Here's mm-hmm. here are all the factors with edge joining a board. You gotta think about this and this and this, and you gotta do this and equal bearing weight right. and all this kind of stuff. And it's so hard. Uh, you have to bear your hand so curiously even. Mm-hmm. You have to have so much skill, but yet somehow they make it look easy. Right. When they've done it before. Yeah. And so I think this is this is really good. Um, I think this is a really uh, great description. I think the struggle to describe the whole thing is really revealing and helpful. Yeah. Because that is what craftsmanship is about. It's a kind of knowledge. It's an embodied knowledge. It's not something you can put into words and uh, write down in a book and have somebody just do that. Follow yeah. step one, two, three, four. There aren't yeah. any commands you can punch into the computer. There's there's no jig that can get you there. Yeah, you it's, just it's gotta like that, learn it. That Alan Watts quote that the the menu is not the meal, right? Yeah. Like the description of the 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 great stuff is not the same as eating it. You yeah. know, there's so much more to it than just having a description in front of you. Yeah. Um, you need to experience it. Yeah. So so what? Why, so what? Why are we? Why do we even talk? Why do we about just this? record this hour long podcast? We got stuff to this. do. We got other we stuff do. to do. No, so, but what's the value of this? What would you say? Why Why would you encourage someone to even spend time thinking about this? Or who cares? Right. Why don't we just make stuff? Yeah. I mean, so it comes back, I think, full circle to just the the fact that we, as, as woodworkers, uh, we all care very much about what we're doing, this craft, and, and passing it on. And we should be able to answer the why. Like, why? Why is this important? Why is this valuable? What about this um, makes us feel alive? Mm-hmm. What about this connects us with humans who are not alive anymore? You know, why is it valuable to keep working on uh, skill building? Mm-hmm. Someone might say, well, if you say, why are you a woodworker? Mm-hmm. Someone might say, there's only one reason. This is a hypothetical person. I never heard this before, but someone might say, all I care about is putting food on my table 
by mm-hmm. working wood. I don't care yeah. about any satisfaction. I don't care about any of that. I only want to make money. Right. I would say, okay, well, that governs your choices about oh, totally. you know, what kind of tools you use and methods you use and whatever. Um, if someone says, I don't care about making money at all. Mm-hmm. I just love making shavings yeah, and making I love stuff. The enjoyment. And that, that's a totally different answer. Yeah. Someone may say, I'm trying to figure out how to have, you know, this this fulfilling career. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of halfway between. It's like yeah. I want it to be fulfilling I love and, and, the work and satisfying, and I but I also want to try to find a way to make an earn or to earn a living yep. and to, you know, raise some kids. So that's kind of in, in between. <laughs> there are all sorts of answers to why you might do it. But I think if we can't assume that the economic answer is the only answer. Right. Why a woodworker? Because it's efficient. Right. Or because it's inexpensive. I can make my own furniture cheaper than right. any other way. Well, get real. I mean, right. not, not right. really. Not really. <laughs> um, so the reason we all do all this crazy stuff, buying all this lumber and buying all these tools and learning all these skills, I think a 99% of us, it's not because... We're just trying to make a living mm-hmm. as noble as that is. And, you know, amen, we need more people yep. making a living, making yep. furniture. That's awesome. But what we're saying is if that is not what you're trying to do, if you're just doing this because you love it, you just yeah. love making shavings, you love the creative process, we're saying it is actually really worth thinking about this. Yeah, It's worth thinking about what do I love about it? And if this aspect right here is what I love about it, how can I get more of it? Instead of the stuff I don't like doing. Right. I mean, who likes standing at a miter saw, a Miller's Falls miter saw for four hours? Not too many people. I mean, I some imagine. people I'm sure really like the um, the novelty of how it's, you know, how genius this design is. And it's fun for a few cuts, but after mm-hmm. four hours, it gets a little old. Right. So, you know, maybe you do love it for four hours. Then that's what you should do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, you found your calling. You found your calling. But I think the whole thing is with for those of us who are, who are woodworkers for the love of it, true amateurs, those right. who do it for the love of right. the thing, um, we should figure out why we love what we love about it and then really focus on that and figure out how to maximize it. Yeah, and that's that's where the satisfaction is. I mean, there's there's always a degree of satisfaction to a job well done. Like if you're just looking to... Uh, you know, knock something out of the park on a, in a production sense or get a job done and ship it out or you're, you're a, a house carpenter and you finished the rough framing, you know, two days ahead of schedule. Um, there is a lot of satisfaction in that. And the beauty of, of hand tool woodworking is that you can focus on developing the skills to increase your satisfaction more and more as time mm-hmm. goes by. Um, you don't need to necessarily... Um, outsource those operations, use technology to get stuff done for you, you can actually enjoy every step of the process and gain skill and dexterity as you go. Yeah, and I think um, Albert Borgman, uh, in his book, uh, he was talking about uh, this idea of this, what he calls the Aristotelian principle. Or Actually, he's, he's citing John Rawls, but he talks about this Aristotelian principle that the more, it tends to be the case that the more skill is involved in an operation or in a task, the more satis- satisfaction is possible. Mm. So it's this idea of if something's really easy to do, right. it's not that satisfying. It's right. kind of boring, right. right? And so you want to be able to exercise your skill to, to challenge yourself, and then you achieve it, and then it's that much more satisfying. So Aristotle was basically arguing, he was saying, as John Rawls put it, people 
will achieve more satisfaction playing chess than they will playing checkers, mm. mm-hmm. right? Because there's more skill demanded, right. and so there's more satisfaction available. It's right. more, it's you know, so there there are greater depths to plumb there too. Yeah, and so some of us, for someone, you know, for my, you know. I have, you know, like a little four-year-old wanting to play checkers, you can begin to introduce the concept of checkers and that's going to be really hard for him to do. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be satisfying and you can move up that rung. You, he practices and he gets better and then it starts to get boring. Right. And now he wants to learn chess because mm-hmm. it's that much more satisfying. So I think that's why this stuff is interesting uh, because we're thinking about, I see, um, at least in my mind, if I can exercise my skill... Uh, and I'm challenging myself all the time, and I'm I'm kind of pushing myself and growing in skill. That's the path to more satisfying work, mm. and that is at the same time not only is it satisfying, but the exercise of skill is the heart of craftsmanship. So I think that's why it's important to me is it's just so stinking fun. Yeah, to work that way. Yeah, yeah. If it if it weren't fun, I don't think we'd be doing it. No. So thank you for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any comments or questions, leave them here below in this blog post, um, and we will get back to you. So until next time, we will catch you later. Thanks for listening.